Well, welcome to Eastlake. Uh, my name is Brent. I'm not Dr. Ron Herms, but I'm going to introduce him in just a second. Uh, back when I was uh, starting some uh, graduate stuff at Northwest University, I signed up for a class with Dr. Herms. I didn't know him at, at all. It was just a class that I had to take for the program. And upon introductions in the class that day, we went around and kind of talked about our majors or, or a little bit of what, what interests us. And he mentioned something about having done his doctoral work in Revelation um, which, as you can imagine, was kind of like a, well, this got interesting real fast, um, kind of discussion. And uh, I was kind of worried in that it was going to become like this Antichrist watch, here's who currently is in politics and who might be the Antichrist, uh, or if it was going to turn into, you know, did you know that if you listen to Led Zeppelin backwards and it all says all this stuff about wanting to, anyways, end times and anything like that, and I was like, oh boy, and I was, uh, I was disappointed because it was nothing like that. I was actually kind of looking forward to that, it, but uh, it was nothing like that. It was really for pr- potentially the first time a a nuanced look, an informed look at a book that goes relatively uh, uh, untouched in kind of the Christian world. And not totally untouched because sometimes people touch about it, but that's the not the kind of church you want to go to, right? And so uh, it was always kind of a weird, we, we like 26 books of the New Testament. We, we like 65 of, of the, the entire Bible, and we just kind of leave Revelation alone. In fact, in the nine years that we've been doing Eastlake now, we're almost at nine years, October 10th will be nine years, um, I have never once done a series on Revelation. I've, I've spoken and, and taken some texts and used them somewhere to talk about kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God or whatever, but I cannot recall for the life of me doing an entire series uh, on Revelation, and the reason for that is very simple. Um, I, and I liken it to doing like home improvement projects. Um, if you, like, if you asked me to change out a faucet, or if I was at home and I was, my, my wife wanted to update some things, I could change out a faucet or a light bulb. But if she asked me, I'd like to change out the bathtub, you hire somebody who knows how to change out a bathtub to do a project like that. So that's why, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Ron Herms. Thanks for coming, buddy. Where you at? There you are. <laughs> Thanks, Brent. Good morning, Eastlake. It's great to be here with you and, uh, and to share this second uh, service. Um, Kath and I have just had an amazing time since Friday evening when we flew in and spent some time uh, with a smaller group in your Eastlake U context. And then we spent some time in a pub yesterday afternoon talking about all kinds of things uh, as they... Uh, maybe related to and maybe didn't uh, relate to the book of Revelation, but just a great chance to talk with some folks, some leaders, and then also had the opportunity to spend some time on the podcast, which uh, was recorded yesterday to anticipate uh, our time together here this morning. And, uh, and I do want to just uh, begin by thanking Pastor Brent and Kylie and their four amazing kids um, for the fun that we've had, had a meal together and hung out a little bit. And it's just been really great uh, to be in the Tri-Cities area and to be here at East Lake with you. And uh, I want to start by just making an observation. And in a moment, we'll dive in a little bit more to the book of Revelation. But I want to start with an observation. And that is that uh, at some point in every person's life, and it's not the same point for every person, uh, because some of us are born into privilege. Uh, most who are born into privilege don't know it, at least don't know it for a while. And, uh, and for some people, in fact, who are born into privilege, when it's pointed out that potentially 
Yes, in fact, you're born into privilege. That can be an offensive thing to hear. It can feel intimidating or it can feel accusatory. But the point being that for for every person, the point in life when we recognize that not everything is right with the world as we know it, that point is different, right? For some people, that's very early on. Uh, People living in traumatic circumstances or in homes that are broken. And then for others, like I said, if you're coming from a, a, a more sheltered or privileged context, it's later in life. But at some point, we all come to terms with the fact that something's not right with the world. We see glimpses of beauty and goodness. Um, We see it in creation. Uh, We see it in people. But very often, that's all they are. They're glimpses or hints that something better can, should exist, but perhaps doesn't. And for many people, that goes beyond personal struggles. So we can all think of examples in our own lives where we're confronted with either our own brokenness or the brokenness that we have to try to navigate in our relationships and that kind of thing. Um, But what about on a more grand, cosmic, planetary, global scale? Uh, The question will come to us as people of faith. uh, Does God really know what's going on? if God is good, if he created the world as a good place intended for the flourishing of everything, then why are things the way they are? And more importantly, is God or what might God be doing about it? And in just a moment, I'm going to suggest to you that Revelation chapter 6 offers us a way to think about what I've just described many of us experiencing. But before I do that, I want to just, uh, I've used the word apocalypse a couple of times, but I want, as I use that word, um, what kinds of images or scenarios come to mind for you? I use the word apocalypse and maybe you think of sort of that Hollywood genre of film where Dwayne the Rock Johnson's running around trying to save people's lives, right? Because buildings are crumbling and uh, freeways are collapsing and all that kind of stuff. Then for others, um, you know, there may be a, a different approach to apocalypse. And it's important for us to recognize that the term itself actually means an unveiling by surprise or a revealing. And so some of us will be familiar with uh, something we call gender reveal parties, where uh, you might uh, go to a location and people have set up this party and they're going to tell you uh, what the gender is of the baby that is to be born. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, know that not all gender parties go well. Um, Sometimes there are some crazy things that happen because people try crazy things to announce the news. Um, So if you're like me, after you've been on YouTube for a few minutes watching idiots at work kinds of videos, and then you've shifted to, um, you know, car fail videos, then you kind of get to gender reveal videos. And I remember seeing one, uh, there was a guy, and the way they were going to do this is they had a watermelon that was filled with jello, the color of the gender they wanted to reveal. And the goal was to get an alligator to open its jaws, pop the watermelon in there, and when the alligator bites down, gender revealed, right? All the jello was going to squirt out. And uh, this guy almost lost his arm, right? This, this child almost came into the world with a one-armed dad uh, because of the gender reveal party. Or there was another one where a border security guy 
planned this party with his wife and she asked him to do some fireworks and they set fire, this is not funny, to 45,000 acres of forest and it cost him $220,000 in reparations for the 800 some firemen who had to come and put out that fire from the gender reveal party fireworks. Nevertheless, a gender reveal party is also an apocalypse, of of, but it's not usually supposed to trigger an apocalypse like a forest fire, right? Here's one further angle. And uh, probably almost everyone in this room has seen the movie The Wizard of Oz at one point or another in your life. And you'll remember that for most of the movie, as the various characters are coming to and from the palace of the great and powerful Oz, they are struck by the smoke, the sound, the lights, the terrifying specter of the great Oz. And near the end of the movie, the little dog Toto runs around the curtain and yanks it back, and lo and behold, the great Oz is what? Not so great, right? It's an old man, you know, speaking into a machine and cranking a bunch of uh, wheels, and, and the great Oz was a charade. And this is an unveiling or an apocalypse. And if we understand apocalypse that way, then we can perhaps begin to read the book of Revelation as a text that's intended to reveal or unveil the world in which we live for what it really is. All right. Um, before we get into our text this morning, I want to give you three basic assumptions that I have when approaching this book of the New Testament. And Brent did a great job of, of uh, pointing out that many people just kind of do a hard pass when they come to the apocalypse because um, it just seems too weird or too strange or they don't recognize it based on everything else they've read in the New Testament. Um, and then there's other people uh, who come to Revelation and do a hard pass because they're experiencing some form of PTSD from previous interpretations that were bizarre and conspiratorial and, uh, and just crazy, right? Um, but when we come to Revelation, here are my three assumptions. The first is this. It's pretty simple. The book of Revelation made sense to the first people that read and heard it. It made sense to them. Uh, this is a document that was written to a group of Christians located in seven different cities in what was known as the Roman province of Asia Minor in the first century CE. It's now the place that we would call Turkey. So it's modern day Turkey. But the point of pointing that out to you right now is to say this. This document was written to real people living in real places at a real time. That's really important to remember when you're reading a book that has dragons and, and horses with scorpions' tails and lions' faces and all kinds of fantastical numbers and images and bizarre beasts. That document, that apocalypse, was written to people who understood it. And I often say to people when I talk about this, the first hearers and readers of Revelation may not have liked what it said, but they understood it. 
And that's a really important observation to make because my second assumption is that most of us are not trained to read the book of Revelation. It, as an apocalypse, it has certain literary conventions, it has certain features that we're not familiar with. So I'll often ask people, you know, how many of you had to write a historical essay in high school? And, you know, most hands will go up. And then I'll say, how many of you had to write a poem at some point, some form of verse, maybe a haiku or something like that. And again, most people not only recognize that, but had to do it at some point in a high school English class. Well, let me ask you guys this question this morning. How many of you in high school English had to write an apocalypse? Right? That's not typically one of the genre forms that we're trained in. So when we get to the book of Revelation, if we do read it, we typically don't read it well because the fantastic images, the sensory experiences, they don't immediately make sense to us. But one of the things that important for us to recognize, this was the IMAX 3D cinematic experience of the ancient world. This was the most creative form of literary expression there was. And the book of Revelation, among many other things, is an important witness to the role and the value of poets, songwriters, artists, artisans, the kinds of people who spur our creative imagination to see the world in new ways and to think about the world in ways perhaps we hadn't before. My third assumption coming to Revelation is this, that it's a Christian text. Now, that's going to sound like a pretty obvious thing, right? Like, who hired Captain Obvious to come speak here this morning? Um, but Revelation is a Christian text from in the following standpoint, and just track with me for a moment. Many people who read the Gospels and the New Testament generally understand Jesus to be someone who embodied peace, reconciliation, healing, wholeness. The book of Acts says Jesus went about doing good. That's the, what he's known for, right? In fact, some people will even have this trite phrase when someone is doing something daring or dangerous, and they'll say, or maybe it's crass or rude or blasphemous, and they'll say, would Jesus do that, right? Because we have this Urkel vision of Jesus as you know, the guy who always wants to do the right thing. The point is the Gospels present Jesus as the one who announces God's peace and wholeness, what we call shalom. But the book of Revelation, especially in the hands of people who don't understand how an apocalypse works, sounds like Jesus is really kind of ticked off. That this is Jesus with an AK-47 riding, you know, out of the heavenly clouds and he's going to blow away all his enemies and, and he's going to set everything right once and for all in that way. Which leads me to make this observation about the apocalypse and the single greatest reveal or the single greatest unveiling in the book of Revelation itself. And it comes right in the section of the book before the text that we're going to look at. We're going to look at chapter 6 in a moment. But in chapter 5, John describes the heavenly court, the heavenly temple, as a place where God's rule, the, the, the place where God says and does what is right and brings peace and order to the entire cosmos, that's the place that God rules. It's the heavenly temple. And right in the middle of the temple 
much like in an ancient temple where you would expect a figurine or a statue or some form of veneration. In Revelation chapter 5, in the middle of this great cosmic temple is a throne, and the one who sits on the throne is the God of all creation, the God who lovingly created everything we know to be good and beautiful and flourishing. And in chapter 5, right in front of that throne, in the middle of that throne room, the author John, in this apocalyptic experience, says that he hears a voice that says, Look, here's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And being a good Jewish theologian, John knows that the lion of the tribe of Judah is the reference to Israel's Messiah who would come and rule the world and set everything right. And a lion is exactly what you want. And John excitedly turns, pivots, swivels, and looks. And what he sees instead is a lamb, a baby lamb, a baby lamb that's been slaughtered. He hears that there's a lion, and he turns, and the apocalyptic reveal is a sacrificially slaughtered lamb. Now, in this apocalypse, which uses images in ways to spur our creative imagination, this slaughtered lamb is John's creative poetic way of saying this is what the crucifixion of Jesus looks like on a grand cosmic scale. Jesus suffers and dies, gives his life up, lays down any pretense to power, anything that would have qualified him to be the Lion of Judah, he lays it down and becomes the lamb that was slaughtered at the hands of his enemies because he loved his enemies. That's the central organizing feature of the kingdom of God, a slaughtered lamb. And I want you to know that there would have been a lot of people, maybe John the author included, who would be disappointed to see that pathetic looking lamb. But this lamb that was slaughtered and laid down its life, this vision of Jesus, it's this Jesus Not a Jesus with an AK-47. Not a Jesus who said, yeah, the first time I came, I was a nice guy, but now I'm coming back and I'm collecting, right? Not that kind of Jesus, but a Jesus who lays down his power and loves his enemies. That is the characteristic, according to Revelation 5, that qualifies Jesus to explain, unveil, unpack, redeem, and restore all of creation. And that's the context to the passage that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we discover that there are going to be four horsemen or four horses of the apocalypse. And here John is now using first uh, century Roman military images. And people would have been very familiar with the emperor riding on a white stallion. Uh, they would have been very familiar with generals in the army riding through the streets in triumph, dragging their prisoners, their captives, their bounty, the booty, all that they would have taken from their conquests. They would have been very familiar with these images. And now the apocalypse tells us that the lamb 
who was slain, who was slaughtered, his giving up of power becomes the way we can understand all the brokenness and chaos that we see in this world that I referred to earlier. So this is what it looks like. First, the lamb shows us that there's a white horse. And this white horse is representative of political aspirations. There's a crown and a bow, and it signals conquest. There's power, there's rulership, there's manipulation and coercion. And the Greek word used for conquest here is the word nike. You recognize it because it's on the shoes you wore this morning, right? And, uh, and if you look at the next slide, you'll see that there's a picture of the Roman goddess Nike, and if you look in the lower left-hand corner, you can see the swoosh that's on the shoes you walked in with, right? That's where the Nike company makes all their money. This is intended to demonstrate conquest and power, and it sets the table. Remember, this is the Lamb Jesus showing us, pulling the curtain back on this world and saying, this is really what's going on here in the world. And he then sets that up for the second horse, which is the red horse. This horse is military might and conquest. And this red horse comes to take away peace. It represents violence and war and the maiming and destruction of people through military means. Immediately following the red horse comes a black horse, and the black horse is the ultimate representation of what you and I might call injustice. It holds scales that are imbalanced. In other words, in the ancient world, the way you cheated people in the marketplace was to tell them something cost a certain amount, and then when they placed their weight on it, you would tip the scales to charge them more than the weight they had actually put on it. And this is the representation of this black horse riding across history, unveiled, apocalyptically revealed by the lamb who was slaughtered to say, this is what it looks like when people reject the kingdom of God and do commerce and do business in their own way. And you end up having things like unfair labor practices and, and employment violations and slavery and all of the things that people in the first century would have been incredibly familiar with in a day-to-day -day, uh, world. The final horse that's unveiled then is the pale green horse. This horse represents death, famine, sickness. It brings a sword, and you'll see this. Some of this is going to be environmental. Some of it's biological. And I think there's even a question mark up there because you fill in the blank. You know, what is the current most endemic crisis? Maybe what, is there something that's local or regional here to the Tri-Cities area that represents an aspect of the unveiling of this particular horse of the apocalypse? And so what you see here is that chapter 5 in Revelation told us that Jesus at the center of the universe sets everything right and has explaining power for everything we experience because he laid his own life down. And in the act of that self-sacrifice, he unmasks, he exposes, he names and shames all of this pretense to power. 
And the truth is, just like people in Asia Minor could have identified names and faces and political realities and economic realities and military realities associated with these four horsemen, you and I could do the same thing here this morning. We could name names. We could, we could suggest certain contexts in which this kind of behavior, which is set against God's kingdom, takes place in the world in which we live. And what the author shows us is that Jesus' self-giving way of life that brings God's good kingdom and his peace is set against this way of doing life that seems to be so familiar. I think it's important for me to pause just a moment and say that this is not a prediction of future pestilence. This is not a prediction of future war. This is the Lamb Jesus exposing the world you and I currently live in. This is the way it always has been. This is the way it always will be until Jesus' kingdom fully comes. And what this chapter is doing is inviting us to think critically about our allegiances and whether we're prepared to participate now in Jesus' mission to undo the effects of these four horsemen. There's an extended quote commentary that I want to read for you on these four horsemen from Eugene Peterson. I think it's on the screen as well. He says this, the world as we observe it is shot through with evil. The evil is summarized in the four horsemen of conquest, war, famine, and sickness unto death. Whether it's power manipulation as political evil, war, social evil, famine as ecological evil, or sickness as biological evil, this is what we're dealing with. He says the following, war attacks the goodness of community. Famine violates and ravages God's bounty. Sickness destroys and wastes God-given bodies. Sins against society, sins against the land, sins against the body. Each of these evils is common, but each is also disguised so that we culturally accept it as something normal, even good. He says, war is disguised as patriotism and a glorious struggle for freedom. Famine is disguised as a higher standard of living. Sickness is disguised by technology. Peterson says, evil introduces by turns power manipulation, conflict, greed, and deceit into personal existence, and it undoes creation, subverting its purpose and contradicting its design of redemption. So let me ask you this question. What do the four horsemen of the apocalypse look like to you right now? Up on the screen is a snapshot of a Sunday Times cartoon from 22 years ago. And if you look at that with me, uh, what do you identify there? You can see guerrilla warfare. You can see industrialization. Uh, nuclear reactor seems to be going off on the right-hand side. And there's also terrorism. So we could perhaps say some of those things clearly are still concerns and realities in the world in which we live today. They are expressions of greed, ambition, conquest. But we could also say there are perhaps some things today that aren't reflected there. 
What about the opioid crisis in our country and the fact that millions and millions of people feel the need to dull, to dumb down the sensory experience of pain and isolation and frustration and disillusionment with the way their life is going. That, in America, could be one of the four horsemen. So there's two responses. Revelation 6 offers us the following two responses. And I'm going to unpack them a little bit, but I'm going to summarize them first and just say it's actually a really simple message that John gives his Christians in these churches in Asia Minor. He says, having seen the Lamb expose the way of the world this way, every person on the planet has one of two options. You can follow the Lamb or you can flee from the Lamb. It really is that simple. And let's read together first from uh, chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. Uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony or the witness that they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the, number of their, until the number would be complete both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. In this vision, these are the people who follow the lamb. And in what way do they follow the lamb? Is it about praying a prayer or making a decision? No, it's the fact that their lives actually look just like the lamb from chapter 5, slaughtered, standing at the center of the heavenly throne room. At the center of this universe is the following organizing principle. Laying down one's life brings shalom. And every human being on the planet has that choice. Now, not everybody experiences that opportunity in the same way. And I believe God's incredibly generous and gracious to give people opportunity in contexts and in situations that we might not even imagine. But for those of us who are in the room this morning, who are engaging with this particular topic and conversation, one of the important things to remember is that the people of God who have followed the way of the Lamb have for a long time. And Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 35 would be one good example of that. It's on the screen where the people of God cry out, How long, O Lord, until you see what's happening and act? That's been a cry for a very long time. And the other thing that that cry does is it recognizes that they're not alone. And one of the things that the people in Revelation chapter 6, who are under the altar, are told is that their number is not yet complete, that there are others who are also living this kind of self-sacrificial way. The second option in Revelation 6 is to flee the lamb. And here's where things get really apocalyptic again, and we see a bunch of symbols and imagery uh, tossed into the text here. The sixth seal was opened. I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth 
and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Here's the amazing thing that happens for everyone who takes option one and follows the lamb. As people who follow the lamb engage with the injustices and seek to bring peace and wholeness and restoration to the lives and the world around them, the truth is that many people respond with amazing joy and gratitude to encounter the peace and the acceptance and the restoration of Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, for people who are experiencing that kind of freedom, there's also the experience of others who have gained through the marginalization of others. And it's people who are powerful, who may have something to gain, who may have something to hold on to, who resist and respond to the work of the Lamb with violence and with fear. In this particular text, and here's what has to happen with an apocalypse, we have to decode the images and symbols. So an earthquake throughout the Bible is a signal of God's presence. So what is it that happens when these four horsemen come riding through history and when the people of God are oppressed and perhaps even have to lay down their lives? The earthquake tells us God shows up. He does not leave these things unresolved forever. Then there are cosmic signs in the heavens, and it seems like the, the entire universe is melting down, and stars are falling from the sky. And here again, we have to do, decode this apocalyptic language well, because this is not a prediction of stars or meteor showers. This is not like the Armageddon movie with Bruce Willis. You know, it's not even a Simpsons episode with an airplane full of celebrities falling out and falling to the earth. That was their take on stars falling from the sky. No. In the ancient world, the deities, gods, and goddesses were associated with the movement of planetary celestial objects. There goes Mars. There goes Nike. There's Zeus or Jupiter. In the Greco-Roman world, and you still will, you, you know this from astrology, you know, people follow the, their, their zodiac signs. There are associations made to deities in the ancient world. And when the book of Revelation tells us that the response of the lamb and the one on the throne is to roll up the sky and to toss aside all the stars, it's not a rejection of the cosmos, which God created and called good. It is a judgment of all false pretense to power, including the deities and the powers of the ancient world that were so supposedly powerful and superior. If you read the Roman propaganda inscriptions, they believed the emperor was divine. They believed the emperor was associated with the movement of the stars. They believed the emperor brought good news. And here's what Jesus says. This is what the emperor's good news sounds like. A white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a green horse. And there's only a few, maybe the top one or two percent 
that are really doing well and everyone else is getting left behind. And in Yahweh's kingdom of peace, no one gets left behind, which is why John invites his readers to follow the lamb. Because even if there is suffering, even if there is struggle for standing on the side of the marginalized and the oppressed, in the long run, John knows that it's only God's kingdom that promises peace for everyone. Right? Another feature of this apocalyptic scenario here is that you'll see that, that the language doesn't have to logically make sense. How can you have mountains be removed and then a verse later, people running into the hills and the mountains to hide? Right? That doesn't make logical sense. And the point here is simply to say this language and these symbols have a message. And the message here is at the end of the day, no one hides from God's inbreaking kingdom. So if anybody's sitting here thinking, I thought just 10 or 15 minutes ago you said the book of Revelation does not promote a Jesus with an AK-47, but Revelation 6:17 sounds a little bit like that. What is all this about, you know, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? Well, just listen to the phrase that rolled off my tongue there. The wrath of the Lamb. Think about that pathetic little carcass of an animal that was sacrificed and is now the center of the universe in chapter 5. How does that thing get angry? Well, let me ask you this. If we're reading an apocalypse and we can tie this lamb back to Jesus in his earthly life and ministry, did Jesus ever get angry? And if you can think of instances where Jesus got angry, what kinds of things did he get angry about? What about when they brought people to him who were sick and he would see someone who couldn't hear, couldn't see, couldn't speak, and he would sigh this deep sigh. Luke 7 tells us Jesus sighed because he was angry that creation was broken, was marred. And his response, his angry response, was to set that person whole, was to set the world right for that person. What about Jesus with his disciples, right? Teaching, hanging out, having a great time, turns around next week, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he's really Guys, after all we've been through, you're, there's still this selfish ambition. You're still trying to climb over each other to get on the inside of the kingdom. Think about that frustration or the anger that he would have when people don't get the idea that this kingdom is about giving your life away. What about when Jesus walked into the temple in Jerusalem and saw people ripping each other off? as they were trying to uh, change money and currency so they could make an offering at the temple. In the house of God, they're ripping each other off. And what does he do? He flips the tables. But this is what it looks like for God to be angry. It's for him to set things right that are wrong in the world. And so when we come 
to the book of Revelation. And the fifth seal tells us in chapter six that there's a few martyrs who have followed the lamb under the altar. And the sixth seal tells us that the masses of humanity are fleeing from the lamb and that who can stand at at the wrath of the lamb? You would think that there's gonna be almost no one left on the planet except a few faithful Christians, right? Wrong. Look at chapter seven. The result of the anger of the lamb is to create a description that the author gives us of two groups of people that are innumerable, that come from every race, every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue. Somehow, the anger of the lamb that was slaughtered transforms angry, fearful, rejecting people into people who honor and worship God as the one who truly has brought peace and prosperity and flourishing, not just to the 1%, but to everyone. Chapter 7 is this amazing vision of hope. 144,000, if you want to know a little bit more about that group in chapter 7 that's listed as the 144,000, we talk about that a little bit in the podcast, which you'll hear on Tuesday or Wednesday if if you check that out. Um, But then, in order to make the point that the 144,000 is a numeric way of the apocalyptic author saying, God is going to gather up all people into his kingdom in a perfect number. Not a limited number, it is a perfect, complete number. But just in case you missed the point, he tells you the same thing again with a second vision, and this time he just says, I can't even count the people. I can't even count this innumerable multitude that comes from all over the planet, and it doesn't matter who you are and where you're from, everyone is welcome in the kingdom inaugurated by the one who laid his life down on a cross and is now at the center of the universe. So in closing here, I simply want to say that the book of Revelation offers us a different narrative, a different story to what we typically hear in our world. We hear that our world has limited resources. It doesn't. We typically don't have an issue with abundance. We have an issue with management and distribution. We don't have an issue with resources per se. We have an issue with greed and ambition. We don't have an issue with too many people on the planet. We have an issue with unjust practices that put certain people in unbelievably difficult situations. And the question we might want to ask ourselves is how can we follow the Lamb into bringing the kingdom of peace bit by bit piece by piece, to the world in which God has placed us. I want to say, I think most people, when they hear a phrase like, follow the lamb, or flee from the lamb, they think of it in terms of these grand life decisions, like, I'm either going to follow Jesus, or I'm not, right? And I understand that there is a basic orientation, and it's not wrong to think in those terms, but I think the truth is that for almost everyone in this room, That's not really the big question. The big question is whether Ron, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, in three days' time, will choose in individual specific ways to follow the Lamb 
or whether I'll succumb to fear, ambition, pride, and flee from the Lamb. That's really the choice that I face on a day-by-day basis. So what I'd like to do is just give all of us here together as a community and as a gathered group of people the chance to reflect on three basic questions. Then I'd like to pray for us and then Pastor Brent's going to come back and we may have a little bit more Q&R here um, just to finish things off. But I want to ask you, in response to the vision of the Lamb that unveils the way of the world as it always is, when it's apart from the kingdom of God, how are you currently living in the tension between goodness and brokenness in creation? Ask you a second question. What's the hardest part of believing that a lamb represents true freedom and flourishing? And finally, thirdly, In what practical ways can Eastlake nurture an apocalyptic posture of radical love for your city, for the people, the region that God loves with an amazing, unconditional love? Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful to you for this apocalypse that comes not to freak us out. It comes not to set us on the on the side or the margins of society as conspiratorial people who uh, think strange thoughts about the future. Rather, this apocalypse comes and hits us right where we live. Uh, It identifies both the beauty and goodness in the world that we can experience from time to time, and it also pulls back the curtain on the powers that often bring to us chaos, ambition, greed, death and dying, sickness and disease, brokenness and relationships. And we're grateful to you for a vision of the Lamb, of Jesus who brings God's kingdom to bear not just on our lives individually, but invites us to participate day by day, decision by decision, micro decision by micro decision, to be carriers and followers of the Lamb's kingdom vision. So would you help each of us by your Holy Spirit to make whatever the next decision for us is to follow and not to flee the Lamb, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.